Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the, f- through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around them, all he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it has been a week, right? The Chiefs won, like, which is pretty astounding, right? Thanks, Charlie. Come on now. Now, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. It was insane downtown on Wednesday, right? Schools all across the KC metro were closed to the chagrin of many of parents. Um, And then offices were shut down. Streets around here were closed. I walked into work um, from my house. I mean, it was really exciting eventually. Like, so here's the deal. When I first heard the news, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I first heard the news about the parade... I'm going to be really honest with you, okay, so don't hate me, don't judge me. When I first heard the news about, like, the parade and the rally, my first thought was, how am I going to get all my work done this week? <laughs> like, that was literally my first question. And, and when something this historical, this good, feels burdensome, when a celebration that's meant to be a moment where, as a city, you can come together and have a joyous time celebrating what's been accomplished, but instead it feels like a distraction, that's usually a good sign that something has gone awry. And I know in the midst of my transparency that I'm not the only one who feels that way. Here's why. Because when others of you, I had conversations with you on Monday, you had the same feeling. (laughs) I'm not alone in this. I know. But how, how do we, okay, how do we get there? How does something good become a burden in our lives? What is it about our lives that when good things pop up, they feel more like a weight than an opportunity? Well, here at Christ Community, we love to talk about our calling to do good work and how work is a space where we actually gain dignity. We are made to do good work. Well done, right? And then simultaneously, though, if you look across our culture... If you look across our culture, you can see that overwork and busyness are at the center of so many of our problems as a culture as well. So Corey Ten Boom, um, a uh, survivor of the Holocaust and also brilliant author, 
she makes this brilliant insight. She says, listen, you know, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, right? There's something really, really dangerous to our spiritual lives about busyness. James uh, Smith, he's an um, author as well as a professor of theology at Friends University. When he's talking about this issue of Christian stagnation, he says at the heart of it, you know, one of the primary enemies of spiritual formation is exhaustion. And so no matter where you are, no matter what state you find yourself in life, it seems as if this busyness, this hurry is coming after every single one of our souls. And it's afflicting people across gender, across culture, across age. You could look at white-collar workers who are expected, not even asked half the time, just it's assumed, it's expected that you have to work an absurd amount of hours just to stay in your field. If you're blue-collar, pink-collar, no-collar worker, you often have to find multiple jobs in order just to survive. And it's not just in the workforce. It's for students. So many students find that they have to... They have to reach near perfection. And, and, and the stress of that uses, comes to like the abuse of enhancement drugs, right? In order to reach this near perfection in grades and extracurriculars, in order to compete for an ever-shrinking pool of scholarships, such that everyone nearly across all stages of life feels like that if they want, quote-unquote, the good life or a piece of the American dream, we have to work ourselves to death. In fact... The uh, Association of American Psychologists, um, or the Association of Psychologists of America, um, they've done a study back in 2018, and they found that 40% of people in this study, 40% of people in America have communicated that they are more anxious than they were the year before. On top of that, they said 40% said they were just as anxious as they were the year before. And, and experts are wrestling with why is there can this continual rise in psychological angst in our culture? And time and time again, what they're coming to see, and this shouldn't be a surprise to any one of us, that they're finding overwork and busyness at the core. I mean, think about your own life. When you look at your calendar when you think about your, your, just the way you have your life structured and its rhythms, when was one of the last times, one of the last days on your calendar when you literally had no work, no commitments, no obligations on that calendar? It takes a minute to think about a day like that, right? And I say all of that not to cultivate shame at all, but to name and to ask the question, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? And then, simultaneously, why do we put these expectations on others around us? Because we do. And here's the good news in the midst of all of this. This is where we're going to be landing our time this morning, is that Jesus knows us. He knows our tendencies, and he's come to speak right into that. In fact, some of the greatest controversies in Jesus' life revolve around what he has to say about rest. Now, if you're new or you haven't been with us for a minute, um, we're walking through a series where we're seeking to rediscover the real Jesus. There's a lot of different makeshift Jesuses out there that seek to trim away the areas that make us uncomfortable or only highlight the spaces where we're really excited. 
But what we're trying to do is go back to the gospel account of Luke. Those people, these eyewitness accounts of people who actually walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus face to face. And when they experienced the real Jesus, they become so overwhelmed with who he is that they had a deep desire to give an accurate portrayal of who the real Jesus is for you and for me. Because there we find life. And they want us to find the same life that they had found. And so this morning when we return and we're seeking to understand who the real Jesus is and what he was passionate about, we're going to come to better understand more deeply something that Jesus was so passionate about. And here it is. There's one big idea. It's this. We have to receive the Sabbath or we'll never rest. We have to receive the Sabbath or we'll never rest. Now, before you tune me out, because maybe you've heard a sermon about Sabbath or whatever, before you go there, that may not mean what you think it means, okay? That may not mean what you think it means. In fact, the Pharisees, who were first century religious experts, they had a lot of ideas about the Sabbath, but as soon as Jesus started giving his perspective, they wanted to kill him eventually. In multiple situations over the Sabbath, they wanted to kill him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to see this morning three crucial ideas, perspectives from Jesus on the Sabbath and how Jesus' understanding of the Sabbath can help us break the cycle of overwork and busyness. Does that sound desirable? Sounds like it's something I really want. Um, I don't know about you, but that's something I would really like. So since I'm preaching, we're going to talk about it. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, okay? Right off the bat, we see that the context, and this is really important, is that this whole, there's two different Sabbath days that these two episodes happen. It's on the Sabbath. Now, every first century reader, that would have brought a load of meaning. It's like a hyperlink that brings emotions, that brings experiences, that brings theology. So let me give you a little bit of history as to why this is so crucial. (coughs) So the first time this idea of the Sabbath shows up is all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that after God has spent six days creating the world, God rests. He completes and delights in his work. Six days of work, a seventh day of rest. And the reason that God rests isn't because he's exhausted. The reason that God stops isn't because he can't keep going. The reason is because that we are made in the image of God. There are plenty of situations where God does something, not necessarily because he needs it, but because he's guiding us into human flourishing. And right here in these first two chapters, we're given the window as to what it looks like to flourish as people made in the image of God. When God himself rests after a rhythm of work and to rest, we're given a window into our flourishing. Now this pattern, it becomes abundantly clear when you get to the Ten Commandments. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're all speaking into each other. This is Jewish meditative literature. You're meant to kind of read, think about it, and how these different pieces connect. So when you get to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, God is seeking to clarify human flourishing. And so he sees his people, after hundreds of years of slavery, as being trained as nothing more as machines and cog and a wheel without any sort of meaning except to accomplish the means of their masters. God says, listen, I'm going to show you what it looks like to flourish again. And alongside of the prohibitions, not to murder, seems pretty important, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to lie, not to worship all these different gods who lead you into destruction. Alongside of that is this prohibition, don't After you've worked six days, 
you need to stop. And for 24 hours, cease from work. Now, interestingly enough, in the Ten Commandments, if you go there in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, the Sabbath command takes up the most real estate. It is the longest of the commands. Now, when you have people copying things down by hand and it takes up the most real estate, it is meant to highlight importance, okay? So I'm just going to read it for us just as a remembrance. It says, verse 8, chapter 20 of Exodus, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So working is really important. Do six days of really hard work, right? But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Sabbath is a 24-hour period where you cease from everyday work. In the midst of this ceasing, This becomes a unique space. It's kadosh in Hebrew, holy. This day is set apart. It's different. God's doing something unique in this day than he is over against the other six days. It's not that he's not doing anything in the six days, but he is doing something really unique in this particular day, this seventh day rest. It's the sanctity of time, which interestingly enough, just giving you some context here why this is so important. Interestingly enough, all the rest, nearly all the rest of the Jewish holidays, holy days, are tethered either to the cycles of the celestial world, so the moon and sun and stars, right, as well as the agricultural calendar, not the Sabbath. It's one of the only days that is exclusively anchored in the creation narrative of God working six days and resting one. And so because God does this and sets this apart, we are given a window into human flourishing. And when you look across the Torah, You find this foundation over and over again for the beauty of the Sabbath and how it is a gift. When you get to the prophets, again and again, they come back to the people of God saying, you're breaking the Sabbath, and because you're breaking the Sabbath, idolatry is coming in as well as injustice, and it's destroying your community. When you get to the poets and the Psalms, you find that, oh, that they become this space. Like the Sabbath becomes a day that's bigger than just this day, but it has like this broader ethos that rest is going to come across the world over and across people, God's people, as if God is dwelling with man. Like it, it takes on a life of its own. So when you step into the first century and you find Israel under Roman oppression and rule in a pluralistic society where the Sabbath is no longer recognized, as like a special holiday that, you know, the Roman Empire gives them a little bit of, you know, leeway there. But it becomes, the Sabbath now becomes this identity marker that you are truly one of God's people because you're holding on to this time, this sanctity time, this place where God said, make it holy. You're holding on to it and it's deeply ingrained into your identity. Now, on a Sabbath, (laughs) all of this rich history, you've got to understand this is so intertwined. All this rich history, on a Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And they pick some grain, start rubbing it together, the chaff blows away, and then they start eating what's left like they're eating peanuts, right? And the Pharisees come up to the disciples and to Jesus, and look with me at what they say in Luke chapter 6, verse 2. They say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, Is Jesus and his disciples actually breaking any laws? It depends on who you ask, okay? 
In the Hebrew text, so in our Old Testament, there is no explicit law against the particular action they are engaging. Now, you could get there by inference, implication, deductive reasoning. Sure. And this is where we start to get a window into the pharisaical life. The laws of Scripture of the Old Testament weren't enough. And so, and here's why. You've got to understand their framework. They're terrified. The Pharisees are absolutely terrified. They've seen God's people be exiled because they're not keeping the Sabbath. Because they're not like seeking after God. And so they create these extra rules such that if you break the extra rules, you're still really far from the edge. It's kind of like if you created a fence that's like 100 feet from the edge of a cliff. If you're looking over the fence and you topple over, you're still okay, you know? For them, it's all about eliminating risk. And this is what's so important, okay? For the Pharisees, we start to get a deep understanding on how they think rest enters the world. For the Pharisees, the Sabbath is a law to be obeyed, period. And Jesus, Jesus disagrees with him. And he says, you've actually misunderstood the Sabbath. How do we know? Because when they confront him and they say, Jesus, you know, why are you letting your folks break the law? Aren't you doing what you're doing is breaking the law? He tells them this really bizarre story about King David. King David was a really, well, really, really well-known king in the history of Israel. And at this point in this story that Jesus tells, David had been chosen by God to be the new king. Samuel, a prophet, had anointed David to be the new king, but he had not yet been crowned as king. Saul, the current king who had disobeyed God, who had said that now his rule would end, was still in charge. So David, the true king, is on, run, on the run from Saul, the rejected king. And he and his men are starving. And Jesus says they went in and they ate special bread in the house of God, this bread of the presence, that it was only lawful, this is really important, only lawful for the priests to eat. And yet nowhere do we see that David is condemned for this. Why? How Jesus ends this story makes abundantly clear the point he's seeking to make. You see, the reason David isn't condemned is because of who David is. He's the rightful king. And he and his men are going about this little ragtag group seeking to go about what God has called them to do. In the same way, Jesus, as we've seen in Luke, has been anointed as the true king. He's here with his ragtag group of men. And they're ushering in a new kingdom. And they've come to bring something only they can bring. You see, Jesus is making an, a, a really important point. When they're talking about the rules, he brings it back to him. And says, I am really unique. This is a really unique moment in history. Actually, if you just look before this passage, they ask, the Pharisees ask a question around fasting. And what is it again? The bridegroom is here. This is something really unique. I'm really unique. And how does he end this one particular episode in his conversation with the Pharisees? Look with me here at verse 5. He tells something really specific about himself. Not the rules, but himself. Really important. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a huge statement, friends. This is absolutely astounding. Here's why. There's three important components of this statement in this little tiny phrase that come with so much weight. Son of man is the most common self-designation of Jesus across the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
This particular title, it comes from one of the Old Testament prophets by the name of Daniel. Stick with me here. I know I'm giving you a lot of biblical history, but this is so rich and so important to really understand what's happening here. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says he sees this one like a son of man. And he's the one who's to usher in God's rule in the midst of so much chaos. And he's simultaneously uniquely associated with the ancient of days, God himself. And so Jesus, coming in with this category, defines himself as the son of man, the one that has been promised, that is to come, that is to bring in God's reign and rule. And so Jesus says the son of man, i.e. himself, is Lord, Greek word, Kyrios. What's also really fascinating in Luke, up to this point, the only time this word Kyrios has been used is in reference to God himself. And so Jesus says, I am the son of man, the one that's been promised, and this son of man is Kyrios, is Lord, is God. And God of what? The Sabbath. What's absolutely central to the Israelite identity, this rest that's been It's been framed at the very beginning of creation that's been so crucial to what God has been seeking to do throughout Israel and even to bring to the world. I am the one over this Sabbath rest. I have this Sabbath rest in me. This Sabbath rest is centered in me. I hold rest in my hands. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That doesn't go over well. This is one of the clearest claims to divinity and deity that Jesus makes across the gospel accounts because of what he's claiming is to be God. And when the Pharisees are so consumed with the what of the Sabbath, he reminds them at the core that what's most important is the who of the Sabbath. And what he begins to shift and say that is truly groundbreaking, which is why Luke is including this particular story here for us to see, for you and I to know as we seek to follow Jesus, is that Jesus is the one who has rest in his hands. Before we can ever, and we will, before we can ever talk about the Sabbath as a practice, as a discipline, we must understand that its source is a person. And this is why, because Sabbath rest is nothing that you and I can create. We cannot make that. We have to receive it from someone. And that is so important. This is, what, this is the first thing we need to understand. This is the first thing we need to understand. The Sabbath is a person first. A person first. You see, if you want true rest, if you're tired of being tired, if you're frustrated with being exhausted, you can't just go about setting these personal rules in your life and expecting to find true rest. You first have to see that exclusively Jesus holds rest in his hands. And he's eager, to, he's eager to give it. But he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Have you ever had this experience where you're sitting like on your couch at night and you're absolutely exhausted? And then you put your legs up and all you want to do is fall asleep, but you can't keep your legs still, right? They just start moving around because it hurts to kind of keep them still. You know what that's called? It's called restless leg syndrome. <laughs> You're tired, but your body can't sit still. It's a brilliant example of what our hearts are like when all we try to do is set up these rules or to just cut out busyness from our lives. Our hearts are still moving around, and they, don't, they can't sit well quietly if it's just about cutting something out. 
And this is why St. Augustine of the fourth century was so brilliant when he made the observation. And it's such a well-known phrase. He says, thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The reason I bring this up, the reason we need to start with understanding that Sabbath is a, a person first is because both in broader culture as well as Christian circles, there's been a lot of talk about taking a personal Sabbath. I mean, there's recent books that have really started to go out in Christian circles about the importance of these rhythms. And then also in our broader culture, it's like, hey, you need to take a day off. You need to take some time for rest. Listen to me. This is so important. You can follow all of those practices, but the moment you divorce them from this person, all you've done is created 24 hours where you're in your own personal hell. The... I say this because this has been a journey I've been on for the past couple years, trying to figure out how to do both the practice and zero in on the person. And if it's just about 24 hours, but it's completely divorced from Jesus, your anxiety will take over. Your work will creep back in, and you'll justify all kinds of reasons why it was just five minutes here or just 30 minutes there. And even if, even if you can keep the anxiety down for a bit and you can really keep the workout, it's so easy to become a complete jerk. <laughs> like when it's all about just me time, wow. Like you've just now formed yourself. One whole day is just centered on you and this discipline of selfishness. There's something that doesn't quite jive with who we've been called to be when it's just about me time. It's not an opportunity to escape and to binge on shows for a good period of time. Although I love to do that. There's something deeper going on in the Sabbath, but it can't just come with a rule. Sabbath is a person, a person first. And we have to see that that person is Jesus, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is why, okay, if you've ever tried to keep a Sabbath consistently, this is why this is so hard. This is why the Pharisees get so frustrated because here's at the heart of the Sabbath. If this is true, if the Sabbath is a person first, then the Sabbath undermines our control. It undermines our control. Like for the Pharisees, this is like the good example of the religious person. And hear me, the longer you follow Jesus and you engage his pack practices, the more the Pharisees' posture becomes a temptation. Okay, so the more you actually engage in this Sabbath, what they did is they created all these rules, right? And they created rules on top of rules. Why? So that they could create their own rest through their own structures. So that at the end of the day, it had nothing to do with God breaking in, and it had everything to do with them keeping this rule so that God would give them what they deserve, which is his rest. And it became very transactional and very much, as we see across the gospel accounts, oppressive, a heavy burden rather than a delight. But that becomes the constant temptation the more you go down this road. Now, for most of us, though, the temptation, I think, is less about actually like now using this day off again and again. And the more we do it, it becomes like this avenue where we think and expect God to give us rest without giving us himself. The other side of that is that we think we can keep control of our lives and live independent lives if we just add more busyness or more accomplishment, which is really ironic. But trust me. That's a journey in my own heart as well, okay? I'm not saying this about you. I'm saying that about us. And I feel this. I feel this allurement. And what I tell myself is this. This is how I can control my environment. I say, well, if I can just work hard enough, good enough, long enough, if I can both burn the midnight oil and be the early bird that gets the worm, 
right? Then I, can, then I can kind of create this space where I feel okay. That's kind of our language for rest. And we make these artificial timelines. Once I get that promotion, once this project is done, which consistently the endpoints on that project keep getting stretched out further and further, and suddenly it's six months to get that project done. Once I have this financial security, this particular number in my bank account, my retirement at this level, then I will rest, okay? I, I can finally live into better rhythms then, you know, when I get there. Busyness and accomplishment will cultivate our rest. And that lie will destroy you, and you will find out way too late that you have gained the world, but you've lost your soul. We, we lean into these lies, either of the religious, that if I can control my world with all these extra rules, then God will give me what I deserve, which is his rest, which is not the way it works, or the other side, that if I just accomplish enough, then I can create my own rest. But both of these will destroy us. And this is why it's so hard. Because you have to depend on someone else to have your world. You have to depend on someone else. You have to put down all these tools and all these avenues where you've tried to cultivate this safety, these barriers. And so to build your own rest, you have to put it all down. And you have to say, God, you have my world. Today, I've got ambitious goals. I've got these major things that I want to accomplish. And listen, if you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm a three, y'all. Okay, so like goals are everything, image is everything. And so there's this idea that if I can just have an extra two hours, even if it's on my Sabbath, then I can get closer to my goal quicker. It brings joy. <laughs> but it's false joy because it doesn't bring lasting joy and rest and peace that I need deep within me. And I trample over people to get there. We have to depend upon God to hold us. And really all this is is a word for faith and trust. And that's why the Sabbath is so hard because it undermines our control. And we have to now say, Jesus, you've got it. If the Sabbath is a person first, you got to know who he is, who actually has the source of Sabbath, who has rest. And you got to say, here's my life, all of me. Because once again, you try to create 24 hours on your own, in your own systems, in your own ways, you're gonna be, it's going to be a breeding ground for actually your own self-destruction and the, other, the self-destruction of others. Plenty of examples of like great me time that never produces life-giving fruit. But if you do, here's the deal. This is what's so powerful about this passage. And we're going to look at the second episode now. If you see Jesus as the Sabbath who's come to give us rest, and you let him have control, not just of your heart, but yes, of your calendar. Then, and only then, does Sabbath restore us. It actually becomes this beautiful mechanism to breathe life into us. And this is where we see this in the second pericope, okay? Here, here Jesus, we see that he's not come to give us even more rules, or he's come to give us an escape out of everything. No, he's come to restore us where we are. And we see this brilliantly beginning in verse 6. So here's another Sabbath day, really intentional language. And there's this man there in the synagogue where Jesus is at who has a withered hand. And I want you to just think about that for a minute. In an agricultural society, how limiting that was. How sociologically and economically devastating this would be in an agricultural society to only have one hand. And Jesus invites this man front and center. The Pharisees are looking on, ready, the text says, to capture Jesus, to get him and doing some mistake. And before he does it, while he knows that he's got everybody's attention, 
he asks a question that gets right at the center of the Pharisees' fencing and extra rules. Look what he says here in verse 9. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And then I love it in the text because, like, while Jesus is standing there, Jesus just, like, stares the Pharisees down. It says, like, after looking at them, he's just, like, looking around. Like, how weird would that be? Jesus does not create a comfortable environment. It's really awkward. Um, Like, you just wonder how long this silence went on where they're starting to feel the tension. What is Jesus going to do? And here's what's really important. Jesus never does any work, and neither does the man who is healed. What he says is what? He looks at the man and he says, stretch out your hand. And instantly the text says in verse 10, and he did so and his hand was, what was it? Restored. This is a really intentional word because Jesus isn't just healing. He's restoring. And this is a teaching moment. It's reminding you and me that we were created for Sabbath rest in all of life. He's pointing back to Genesis restored. Not that it was always broken. No, we were meant for something good and whole. The very good he said over the seventh day of creation. You and I were created for very good in all of life. And he's come to restore us to this. But that's not what we experience in the brokenness of the world, is it? In the brokenness of our work, And the brokenness and the sinful decisions that we've made when we often craft the world in our image rather than in God's brilliant design. But Jesus says, I've come to restore. I've come to bring wholeness. I've come to make wrongs right. And it's right there when Jesus has broken no rules that they still try to figure out what they can do to this man. The Pharisees try to figure out here what they can do to him. Later, they try to figure out how to kill him. And it has to do with healing, and it has to do with good on the Sabbath. Really fascinating, yeah? And the reason that Jesus is so passionate about this is because it's central to his mission. He's come to bring restoration in your life and mine. Now, if you're anything like me, okay, so we've talked about the Sabbath as a person first, it undermines our control, but then it brings restoration when we actually lean into who's at the center of the Sabbath. If you're anything like me, you're starting to ask, okay, how do, how do I actually receive the Sabbath, right? And, and you may have like a million questions when it comes to the practicalities of this. Here's where I feel the tension. <coughs> the more wisdom that I give you across the pages of Scripture and in our cultural moment, the more it starts to feel like I'm creating a new legalism and law. If I don't say anything, it feels like we're scrambling (laughs) with any sort of practical handles. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, I'm going to give you just two clear next steps that are much more broad, all right? Two clear next steps as to how we actually go about receiving the Sabbath. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. Embrace the person, okay? This may seem very obvious, but it is a crucial first step, not a second step once you've got your, because the way it's going to be structured is going to be shaped by him if he's truly at the center. Embrace the person first. See Jesus as the source exclusively of our rest and our hope and our freedom. Have you done that? Have you surrendered control to him and let him bring rest? 
Because listen, he wants to give you rest and he wants to invite you in what it means to live into rest and how it goes deep and down into the depths of your heart and soul. <coughs> I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this invitation that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 11. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover life. I'll show you to take I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It comes back to this invitation to Jesus. How have you responded to that invitation? To him first. And then secondly, we come to see that this isn't just a spiritual reality that lives within the ethereal components of our lives, but it actually takes shape in our calendar Number two, we actually walk with Jesus and his practice consistently. If he really does, if he really does engage and actually have the power of life, and he's the one who's the Lord over the Sabbath ready to give it, shouldn't it also shape our calendars? Jesus did not come to abolish the Sabbath, but to fulfill it. And what does that mean? It comes with following and walking with him. And so I just want to give you four quick P's, all right, because I'm a pastor. Four quick P's on how to practically walk with Jesus in good, healthy Sabbath-keeping, okay, across the biblical testimony. Here's the first one. Pick, all right? Pick. Pick a day. The more you see across the New Testament and the evolution of the church, led by Jewish leaders as they're giving freedom to a diverse congregation of various cultures, there is less an emphasis on the particular day, but an emphasis on a 24-hour period every six days, right? After six days of work, pick a day to rest. What's that day for you? What's that day for you? A day where you can actually say, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to actually engage and focus my attention on the person of rest. Even as I was talking with Allie about this, you know, she's like, don't forget, don't forget, stay-at-home parents. <laughs> this is really complex because the day off, you still got to feed your kids if you care anything about them. Um, somehow that's got to work. Uh, so there's some complexities here. Or if you have multiple jobs, trying to figure that out. For me, it's on Fridays. Um, I, I take off some other time on each side of that. I try to have kind of my quote-unquote weekend to get some house projects done on both sides, but to still have 24 hours where I don't do it great. I've got a long way to go. I'm not saying I figured that out, okay? Just saying that's how, where I'm trying to fight for it. And that's, so pick a day, just a day, and fight for it and fight for it consistently. Number two, don't just pick it. Protect it. Invite your friends and family in on this and encourage them to kind of speak into your life and to challenge you to say no to toxic actions and yes to restorative actions. Restorative actions. What's going to restore you as you center your attention and work on Jesus? For me, that's inbox pause. So you get an email. Or you send me an email on a Friday. You're going to get an email back. That's an automatic response that says, I'm not even going to see your email. And for some of you, that drives you nuts. And I don't care. Because here's why. Because <laughs> everyone else who's trying to figure out my rhythms that sets clear expectations from them to them that I'm not going to be engaging them in this way. I'm not going to be owned by email. And I hope, I hope it, it's a catalyst for them to know freedom from technology as well. Okay? So protect. Number three, prepare. There's been a lot of talk about lighting a candle or doing different practices to help you prepare. And those are all really good for me. It has everything to do with prayer. Because I wrestle with anxiety, folks. Okay? So for me... The moment I pause my inbox and I get home, I have to have like this prayer of surrender. God, you've got this church. You've got this work. I can let it go for a minute. 
And then when I wake up on Friday, I got to pray again. <laughs> and then at lunch on Friday, I got to pray again. Because it just keeps creeping back in. It's about centering back in on Jesus and resting and delighting in him. And for me, that re requires a significant amount of prayer. None of us can rest on our own. We need Jesus, every single one of us. And then lastly, practice. Actually take the Sabbath, okay? You've done all this work. Don't let work creep back in. Don't let these other activities creep back in. And then evaluate it. How's that going? Is this a good rhythm for you? Is there a better day that works for you? So it's pick, protect, prepare, and actually practice. And I have to tell you, like, this is, this is if there's anything that I talk a lot about with people, it's this. Over the past couple years, this has been a major journey for me. And I know from so many of you, you want to talk about one of the biggest enemies in your life to be engaged in spiritual formation and growing at your work as well as from your work, it's this, healthy rhythms. We cannot live in chaos and flourish. And I know I'm learning that for me, okay? It takes a lot of work. It's pretty complex, but it's so worth it. Don't let a good thing feel like a burden. Receive his rest. Let him break that cycle of busyness. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, you have centered our attention and our affections on your son, Jesus. He is the one who has come to bring rest, to give rest, and it comes by surrendering and falling on our knees before him first. And then we now follow into your biblical wisdom from Genesis to Revelation and the importance of healthy rhythms and calendaring and rest in the midst of really good work. God, help us to trust you rather than trying to control our world. Help us to surrender. And so, God, I want to invite your spirit in this very moment to convict us of sin, to guide us into life and flourishing. And so, for everyone who's here, I'm going to turn this prayer just slightly, and I'm going to ask three reflective questions, and I want you to just pause and allow the spirit to speak to you this morning. Thinking through your own life, church, this morning, what do you need to say no to so you can say yes to the Lord of rest. Church, where are you working to create your own rest? And where are you withering away where Jesus wants to restore? Surrender those to him this morning. Surrender your life to him this morning. As simple as saying, God, take all of me for you now. God, thank you for the cries of children in the background. Um, that often feels like the cry of our hearts <laughs> for rest. And I pray, Lord, that this morning this would be a place of liberation, that this would be a place of freedom, that your spirit would not have just tickled our ears, but will now shape our lives in transformation by the power of your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.